What's up, mortals? This is Mortality Minded, where we explore life, death, and whatever's next through culture, science, personal growth, and more. I'm your host, Thomas Gaudio. Back in the spring, when the first wave of COVID-19 in the U.S. hit New York City like a tsunami, there were so many deaths in such a short period of time that the normally seamless process of transporting, burying and cremating, and memorializing the dead was upended. Funeral directors, typically poised managers of these end-of-life services, suddenly found themselves scrambling to adapt to a threefold conundrum. One, how to dispose of the dead amid a logistical logjam. Two, how to support the living amid an emotional crisis in which people couldn't be there in person for their dying relatives and friends and couldn't come together in person to mourn and celebrate them after they died. And three, how to keep themselves, their staffs, and their families safe amid widespread shortages of personal protective equipment meant to mitigate the spread of coronavirus, including from the recently deceased. Today's interview is with Caroline Schrank, a funeral director in New York City who runs down-to-earth funerals, about what she went through both professionally and personally during that period. As we approach the end of a year marked by a staggering amount of death, I'm highlighting this work, normally out of sight and underappreciated, because it's been critical throughout the pandemic, and it deserves greater recognition. One more quick note. I spoke with Caroline at the end of October, back when the latest COVID wave was beginning to pick up steam. Currently in New York City, the number of COVID-related deaths is rising a bit, but it's nowhere near what it was in March and April. In much of the rest of the U.S., as we all know, it's a different story. Nationally, the number of COVID-related deaths has risen dramatically to more than 3,000 per day on some days, which is unfortunately similar to the numbers we were seeing during the first wave. Let's hope the FDA's recent approval of the first COVID vaccine is a sign of better days ahead for all of us. Here's my interview with Caroline Schrank. I want to set this up a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about what's happening right now and what that spring was like for New York City, because it was a little crazy. And I think people, there's been so much that's happened since then that I think it's good to have a little bit of a reminder. So the last time I checked was yesterday, which is October 20th. There were nearly 24,000 confirmed deaths in New York City. Okay. And I think the large majority of that was back in the spring because we're still having deaths, but not nearly as, be- as much as there, there were. But the interesting, interesting thing or tragic thing is that right now we're seeing spikes in other parts of the country. It's starting to surge back up again, not in New York City, thankfully, but other places. Right. Um, there's essentially been, you know, single digit deaths per day here since like July, I think. Mm-hmm. That now we have the flu season coming up. We have spikes, spikes in New Jersey and Connecticut and Pennsylvania. Um, so there is this, I think, very especially New Yorkers are acutely kind of concerned about this and, and about another surge here, potential, potential surge here. Mm-hmm. So going back to the spring, and that's when everything really peaked. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's worth revisiting that because like I said, so much has happened since then. There's been so much death 
uh, with COVID, there's been the, the, the social justice protests in response to George Floyd's death and Breonna Taylor and Amon Arbery. We have this highly contentious election, right? There's, it's been like a lifetime's worth of <laughs> things happening to us and, and that we're, we're witness to over the last few months. So bringing people back to that, that springtime, right? It was like so much fear, so much chaos, so much confusion. Um, there were, you know, shortages of masks, right? People were hoarding food and, and toilet paper. Um, and it, it kind of started out slowly. I think actually, um, just checking here, March 11th was the first death in New York City, which was the same day that the um, WHO declared COVID-19 a pandemic. Mm-hmm. And then it very rapidly took off to the point where, um, we had our first day of triple-digit deaths, meaning 100 deaths or more, uh, on March 24th. And that ended, that triple-digit death per day ended on May 16th. So that acute period of like mid to late May to uh, March, rather, to early mid-May was like the peak. Mm-hmm. And then the peak of the peak seemed to be that first week of April when, according to New York City data, there were 815 deaths in New York City on April 7th. Mm-hmm. attributed to COVID-19. Right. So you were in the thick of all that. I will say that I, uh, I was not on the ground and the ground meaning I hire people, I outsource my, uh, it's called trade work. So I outsource my trade work. The people who do go to the hospitals, go to the nursing homes, go into the homes, take the bodies and bring them to the funeral home and then take them from the funeral home once the paperwork is completed to the crematory. I was not, I I did not do that. And I have to say that the funeral directors who did this work were, I mean, I have to compare them to how the, the medical profession just rose up and, did not have a thought of selfish self selfishness and oh my gosh I could get sick I mean these guys and women that I hired to do this were in the trucks at the hospitals you know you didn't just go to the morgue and pick up a body you went to the morgue and you got told to go to a truck outside to find the body that was there So I have to say that the funeral industry, the professionals, you know, were above and beyond, you know, brave and self-sacrificing and risking their lives to to do this work, which which was really incredible. Um, What I did was talk to families and, and do paperwork which, which was a service as well, but I wasn't, my life wasn't in danger. So I really have to like take my hat off to all of the people that did that. I think they were under, underappreciated. I think it was because there was so much activity and over, you know, we were all at capacity. So it really wasn't a time to, to say, to herald these people, but it really wasn't, I mean, I think the mayor didn't say anything or the governor, it was just sort of about needing help, but it wasn't, I don't think funeral directors were as praised as I I think they could have been 
for, for risking their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, it was, it was, it was, it was terrible. I mean, I, my phone, it was like I was at a radio call-in show every time, you know, my phone just rang off the hook and people were desperate. And, you know, I don't think the city was prepared. I don't think they handled it particularly well. I think that traditionally what a funeral director does wasn't able to be done, you know? So for instance, when we would pick up a body at a hospital and take it back to the funeral home and then take it to a crematory, in between that time, there's visitation or there's, you know, a service. There was none of that. It was just moving bodies from A to B to C. And Mm -hmm. it, it just wasn't done, I don't think, correctly. I think in China, they had makeshift crematories outside the hospitals where they just cremated there. Oh, interesting. It wasn't set up well here. And again, we didn't have the foresight. We didn't have the leadership. There's a lot of, there was a lot of things that were not done right. So when I would get a call from a family who lost a loved one who they didn't get to say goodbye to, didn't get to see at the hospital, didn't get to be with when they died. And now we're fighting to get a place that would take them, would help them. It was beyond sad. So I spent my days and my nights talking to people and, and helping them as much as I could and giving them as much support as I could. And, you know, in turn, I learned a ton. I learned so much. I think the biggest thing I learned is not to make promises to anyone (laughs) unless you're absolutely sure. Um, One of the biggest lessons was people who um, couldn't see their loved ones who wanted photographs of their loved ones. And a couple of times I made mistakes. I promised a picture and the way the bodies came to us and the time and the resources that we had, we didn't really, we weren't really able or it just wasn't done where the bodies were prepped in a way that the families could actually see a picture that, that they would recognize. So a few times what I had to do was say, you know, I want someone to see this photo to let you know that this is your loved one, but I I can't let you see this photo. I can't let you have this as a lasting image. I need someone else in your family or a friend to look at this for you. Because why? Because the body had decomposed too much or? All kinds of things, all kinds of things. We got bodies with the ventilators still, the tubes still in their mouth. And I do know funeral directors who, absolutely went in and prepared these bodies and took the tubes out and risked their lives. I mean, it was, you know, so there was, it it was, it was like a war zone. It really was. And it was just horrific that these families had to just beg for someone to do, do the cremation for them. Um, I only did two burials out of all of the hmm. of all of the cases that I did. Why was that? Just that it was it was just 
a, a larger process to do a burial. And a lot of people didn't, if they didn't own a grave, it was harder to get the cemeteries on the phone because uh, funeral directors and cemeteries are separate entities. So we don't purchase graves for families. We add the opening of the grave and the closing of the grave onto our bill, but we don't purchase, we don't purchase them. So they Mm -hmm. had to do that separately and they couldn't get the cemeteries on the phone. So unless they owned a grave, it was really difficult to purchase a grave at this point in time. So because things are so busy on on multiple fronts, I mean, all all aspects of this chain were were overwhelmed that it would just become more practical to do a cremation. But crematories were also overwhelmed at the time as well, right? There was a wait wait time for cremations, no? Yes, there was. I sent my cases to a crematory outside of Syracuse. So I luckily had a funeral director from upstate who came down and helped me and oversaw transporting the bodies up to his funeral home where they were until we cremated them in Syracuse. So, you know, I had a base up there and then he was taking five bodies a day. Crematories can't handle that many bodies. Like that, they're just not built for it. There, there was nowhere to, to cremate. And then I was doing it, you know, in a day up there. Like they were like cranking them out. In fact, I just talked to them because I needed a receipt from someone. And they were like, we were just thinking of you the other day. I was like, oh my God, you guys saved me. You know, and they were happy to pitch in. I mean, people did whatever they could. People pitched in wherever they could. New York was definitely overloaded. And once you kind of left this area, things weren't as overloaded as they were. Um, But again, doing that research and doing that legwork and figuring out where to go when your phone's ringing nonstop, it was really you're bringing me back to a really bad time <laughs> think about it. <laughs> it's really awful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, I guess I do want to bring you back there, right? That's kind of why we're having this conversation because I want to talk about that because I think it's important to talk about that, to ha- tell these stories, to, to share your experience and the experience of other people within the funeral industry who are going through all this. Um, and also as a reminder to people about what happened, how bad it actually was, because we have very short memories in, in this day and age. Yeah. To go back and think about those days, it's incredible. If you're lucky enough to have a good funeral now, you're going to be thankful because that wasn't the case. You know, they really didn't get it. A lot of families really didn't get a chance to to do things the way they would have wanted to or the way their loved ones would have wanted to. And I think their grieving process was much more complicated. And I think about the families a lot now because it seems as though we're in a better place with the number of people who are dying, knock wood. And I just feel so bad for people who lost loved ones just because we were caught off guard with, with this. Normally, the way it works, right? If someone dies, they're going to, the way you have your business set up, you're outsourcing, you're working with other people who will go and pick up the, the body at the hospital and then take them to uh, the viewing site, right? Whether that's at a, the funeral parlor in Brooklyn or somewhere else if, of their choosing. And then they would go to the burial site or the crematory. Mm-hmm. And that's usually a fluid standard process, right? Mm-hmm. But then because everything was overwhelmed, 
the morgues at the hospitals were overflowing. I think the New York City Medical Examiner Office sent out extra refrigerated trucks out throughout the city to uh, manage the overflow of bodies at the hospitals. And then because of the backup at the at the at the cemeteries and the uh, crematories, they ended up staying there longer than they were supposed to. There were reports of funeral directors who were storing bodies in their funeral homes, cranking up the, the air conditioning to keep them, to keep them at a good temperature. Yeah, so it just seemed like everything started breaking down. To your point about the fact that we weren't prepared, and you're saying there was wasn't good leadership. So uh, during that period when all this was happening, and there was your your phone was ringing off the hook these bodies are piling up or all around the city. What do you think could have and should have happened? I mean, the National Guard was at the morgues. I, I think that there should have been more help to the funeral industry here to transport the bodies from the hospitals to crematories outside of the city mm-hmm. and it was left up to the individual funeral directors to do this. And I remember Andrew Cuomo in one of his amazing press conferences saying, you know, we're, we need more funeral directors from other areas of the country to come and help us. That wasn't what we needed. We, hmm. we were the funeral directors. We could handle the families and the paperwork. What we, what I couldn't handle, I'm not going to speak for others, but was the actual disposition of the body. So Mm -hmm. that's where I feel like, you know, we needed help getting the deceased from the hospitals to the crematories. And that piece took a lot of time and a lot of work. Because there were some funeral directors who were, who flew in, right. Kind of like the the same way nurses and other medical professionals came in and kind of uh, helped and helped support hospitals. I I saw some reports of that. And I I think I saw on Facebook people talking about this, how they came in and were volunteering from other States, if I'm not mistaken. Right. And I had a volunteer who was incredible. I mean, he was incredible. He was on the ground. He also brought his own vehicle because he was upstate and he was a New York state funeral director. So Mm. For me personally, what I could have used was more bodies on the ground in hazmat suits doing the work that funeral directors did that was, you know, really dangerous. And we didn't have the PPE that even, I mean, I won't speak. I I, I know that there was PPE, but I personally didn't have access to it mm-hmm. the way that I think it should have been provided by the city but they don't understand the funeral business. So like they didn't get it and they didn't have advisors who got it. It's an interesting, different kind of business. So how could they understand it? Yeah. Yeah. That definitely got short shrift. And uh, even though there was a lot of, at the time, attention on it, but yeah, it just seems like it's it's still one of those uh, not very well understood areas, industries. So. For all the same reasons that people don't talk about it, it's also misunderstood because people don't want to dig in and understand it because then they're in it and they don't want to be in it. Yeah. So it would have been beneficial to have more people to do things like taking the body, taking the body from the morgue at the hospital, whether it's in the morgue or in one of those refrigerated units outside the hospital, outside the hospital. Yeah. And then maybe taking the, the ventilation tube out, as you mentioned, just the transportation. And at that time, I guess we, there wasn't quite a consensus on whether or not a, a dead body could transmit the virus or not it seems to be like varying reports about whether that was happening or not and there was even a report i think of one funeral director 
contracting it from a dead a dead body. I don't know if that actually turned out to be true or not, but I remember reading a report about it at least. And I, I think it was in another country maybe. So there's a lot of uncertainty and fear around that. So you're saying that it would have been much more beneficial to have something like the National Guard come in and hazmat suits and doing that work. Correct. And transporting to bodies, for example, to crematories outside of New York City where there was more capacity. Correct. So that the funeral directors could really be there for the families more because they needed support and they were calling and wanting to know what was going on all the time. And, you know, we were their only conduit to their loved ones. We were the only person who had any idea really what, you know, what was going on after they passed away. So, um, yeah, it was, it was really hard on these families. It was really, really hard on these families. You know, I still keep in touch with a a good number of the families that I worked with partly because we're kind of all in this club now where we've, you know, we've experienced it and I know what they went through and they know that we shared this time and it's, um, it's, it sucks. I feel so bad for them. Yeah. You know, maybe I'm projecting this, but I feel like they just might feel really unlucky, especially because now the mortality rate isn't as high. I'm not saying there's a cure, but it just kind of feels like we know a lot more than we did and there's a lot more understanding. So I just feel like they were sort of hit with this train that they were in the first kind of car in. And I, I that, that's just a, I think there will always be a collective group of people that lost someone in that wave that will have a shared experience, you know, if things had just been different or had been at a different time, they, they might not have seen the death. They might've gotten very sick, but maybe they wouldn't have died. It's unfortunate. But there was at least someone there for them and someone who was coordinating and they were, I'm sure, um, adapting themselves and maybe, um, memorializing that person over Zoom or in different, or maybe just in a small gatherings, uh, because mm-hmm. we're everyone's adapting, and yeah, especially people who are, you know are in that moment probably have to. Uh, if you have the urge to to celebrate that person to mourn them, you're going to do it. I'm sure you're going to find a way. Right. I mean, yeah, we did. We did adapt. We did do Zoom memorials. It was meaningful to. to to, to people to be able to gather virtually. Uh, it really was. There were some really, be- really beautiful moments. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and looking towards the future, I, I definitely see a future in the Zoom memorial and also live streaming if there's people that can gather for the rest who are online. I think that's kind of going to be a given in the industry from now on. Mm-hmm. I think um, funeral homes have upgraded a lot. Even the more traditional ones have upgraded to having capacity to ability to, to film and, and, and do this. So I definitely see that as the future. It's probably going to be more of a hybrid where you'll have some people present and then some online but certainly it's we've kind of cracked it, cracked the code. So now it's sort of the the stigma of it being sort of less than 
is kind of over. It's just if you're lucky enough to be able to see someone and hear someone and talk about someone, people are happy with that. Yeah, I think it's going to, it'll probably end up increasing attendance, at least remotely, because people are probably going to, you know, attend, yeah, by Zoom or, or however, where they wouldn't have come otherwise, right? Exactly. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's probably a positive thing that's come out of this for the industry, which is that it's it's forced the industry to go into the modern world in, in a way that they were sort of not having to. Um, but now, like, now the jig is up. Now we know that. Um, now we know that that it's possible. So people are going to say, "Well, I can't make it, but can you zoom me in?" So right. again, now it's going to be the customer that's going to tell the funeral home what they want. And going back to the peak of the pandemic and back in the spring, you, you said your phone was ringing off the hook, and you were struggling to give people the the time and the the uh, the service that they they needed because you were so spread thin. Did you have to coordinate with other funeral directors to try to take the uh, to manage the overflow, or how did you handle that? I think I was the overflow. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I still have a memory of one person that I didn't help, and yeah, it was bad. Do you remember when when exactly that was? I don't remember the date, but I just remember him calling a couple of times, and I just you know you just want to know what happened, you just want to know where they went, and that they were okay, and you know. I actually spoke to someone this morning, someone who wants to bring the ashes back home to Barbados, and I'm going to help her figure that out, how to do that. And I know I was a trigger to talk to because she remembered what we went through and, and how she's still healing, you know. And she said, oh, we have to meet someday. We still have to meet. And, you know, when, when this was all happening and we said that, we, we couldn't imagine a time where we could actually meet. Mm-hmm. What was it like for you personally then? It was a lot because you just, you were so, I was just so overwhelmed with the logistics of it all, you know, and the nuts and bolts of it all, that it was overwhelming. That, that was overwhelming. Um, and the fear, the fear of, I have two kids, I'm a single mom, like I couldn't really risk going out there. And I was pretty vocal about that to people that I hired. And I actually, um, I didn't make that much money during COVID. I mean, I really didn't because I paid out a ton as, as it was deserved. Yeah, I mean, I I needed support. I needed people to help, and, and and so we all kind of worked together. Were any of them exposed? Did any of them get sick? Or how were how were they? They were okay. Yeah, I think it's a I think it's a certain kind of person that they're just you're either in it or you're not. You know, none of these people were halfway. My brother's a volunteer fireman, and I said to him once when he saved a cat, I said, what, what were you thinking? And he said, you don't think, you just go. And that's, that's what the funeral directors who were out there were like. They were not thinking of themselves. They were just doing their job. Okay, last question. What are your thoughts on if we were to have another surge in New York City, which is not out of the realm of possibility? Mm-hmm. Do you think that we've learned our lessons here. Do you think we're prepared? Do you think, you know, how would you and other funeral directors deal with it this time? Yeah. I know where to get my refrigerator truck. So that would be my first move to do that, to just have a better handle on, on that aspect, on the body disposition aspect. 
Um, everything I do now is online. Mm-hmm. It kind of was before, but I was more apt to meet a family at the funeral home or meet them at a Starbucks or go to their apartment with my paperwork. Or even if it was online and it was on my laptop, I would go and meet with them. Mm. And I mean, I've stocked up on some cremation containers, all the things that, you know, would again, run out and we'd say, why didn't we know this time? Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Well, thanks so much for sharing your story with me today. It was great. Thank you, Thomas. Amazing. And Down to Earth Funerals is dtefunerals.com. Now I want to take some time to share my daily mortality mantras with you. I developed the first one a few years ago. It goes like this. I will die, and I could become severely ill and or disabled. One or more of these state changes could happen or start happening right now, decades from now, or at any moment in between. So I will make the most of whatever time I have left while I'm still healthy and breathing. The second one is a saying in Italian from my grandmother, who died in 2019 at the age of 102. She would say it to me and other members of my family whenever we needed to hear it most. And it's something I repeated back to her over and over again, just a few hours before she died, as potential travel advice just in case she was going somewhere. It goes like this. Ordina al tuo destino di essere bello e tale sarà. It means, command your destiny to be beautiful and it will be. I say both of them to myself every day, usually after the roughly 30 to 60 second ice cold shower I take each morning, shortly after getting out of bed to help wake my groggy ass up and start the day off right. I hope these matches help you as much as they help me. All right, that's a wrap for now. Join me in exploring mortality and everything that follows from it by subscribing to Mortality Minded wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find episodes and other content on mortalityminded.com. If social media is your thing, I'm at mortalityminded on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Or if you want to kick it old school, email me through connect at mortalityminded.com. Let me know what you think of this episode and others by rating and or commenting on them. Your feedback is much appreciated and goes a long way in helping make the show better for everyone involved. You, the guests, and me alike. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, Stay mortality-minded.